Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this beginning of the most holy of holy days. Amen. So as I've said before this week, but I say again, it is not a simple thing to put together a Holy Thursday service without the Lord's Supper. We have just come to take it as tradition and as an obvious thing that when Thursday comes around, being that it is the night in which our Lord was betrayed, being as how it is the night in which he instituted this sacrament for the forgiveness of our sins and the comforting of consciences, we would obviously celebrate it. And yet here we are fasting from the Lord's Supper in our homes for, as I like to say, the sake of our neighbor, out of love for them and for their body. The whole Holy Thursday service is built around the Lord's Supper. It starts with that very unique sort of confession and absolution that is all about now that we have fasted through Lent, we are preparing to come to our Lord's Supper. So obviously, very difficult to do that since we're not. And the readings, you might have noticed we only had a gospel reading for tonight. The epistle reading, the Old Testament reading are all about eating. And they're all about the Passover and how that Passover took on new meaning when Jesus instituted the last sacrament. And the music, even the two hymns that we picked for tonight, which do tend to emphasize the service nature of this night, the Mondi part of it, um, still have all these references to the Lord's body, the Lord's blood, and taking his supper together. So we are reverting to the old name for this Thursday, the one we used to use when I was younger. Not Holy Thursday, but Mondi Thursday, which comes from the Latin mandare, and it means commandment. Not the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper should never become a command. We don't want to make the things that surround the Eucharist and Holy Communion become a law. So as we were kind of backing into this quarantine all across North America and coming to terms with the fact that we weren't going to be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper the way we normally do, one of my brother pastors very wisely said, whatever you decide to do, do not do anything about the supper that would make it a mandare, a commandment. You have to take the individual glasses, or you have to drink from the common cup, or you have to come to the Lord's Supper even if the government tells you not to. Any have-tos should never be associated with something that is a pure gift from God, the gift of the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the washing of the disciples' feet and the command from our Lord to go and do likewise, that is a commandment. In fact, we often call it the new commandment because that's what Jesus himself says. A new mandare I give unto you. Now, it's not the love one another part that's new. That, in fact, is very, very old. When people say, Pastor, all religions are the same, they generally mean the law part of religions. And they're referring to the fact that whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or even an atheist or an agnostic, there is some sense in which we know we ought to love one another as we give love to ourselves. So that's not the part that's new. Even Moses, in Leviticus 19, records the Lord's words of, do not take revenge on others or continue to hate them, but love your neighbors as you love yourself. The part that's new is that Jesus says, love one another 
as I have loved you. And so tonight, this most holy of nights, in addition to being about the Lord's Supper, is also about how Jesus loved us. If you haven't picked up on it so far through Lent, in our reading from John 3, John 4, John 9, John 11, Jesus is a particularly destabilizing presence for people that think they have it all figured out. Whether it is to Nicodemus, where he tells him you must be born again, whether it is with the Samaritan woman at the well, who says that he is the Messiah, who has come to bring salvation even to Samaritans, whether it is to the man born blind who ends up being thrown out of the synagogue because he's cured on the Sabbath, or whether it is with Lazarus, where Jesus upends the whole idea that Martha expresses of there being a resurrection on the last day. Here he is right in the middle of the days, raising his friend from the tomb. Jesus shake things, shakes things up because we tend to put all of our trust in ourselves, which is idolatry, and also because we misunderstand where God is at work in the world. So take, for instance, the customs surrounding a community meal. And I'm going to try and Canadianize this a little bit. It is not a perfect illustration, but you're going to have to roll with it a little bit. We know what it's like in winter, which apparently still is. There's snow outside, there's mud, there's salt, there's yuck, and we get them all over our boots. And so we know that when we go to visit somebody in their house, we don't want to traipse all of that stuff onto their beautiful hardwood floors, or even worse, onto their carpets. So we take off our boots. Now imagine that you've got a particularly caring and thoughtful friend who's invited you over for a meal, and he knows that you've been driving, maybe even you've been out on a snow machine, or you've been traipsing through snow, and your feet are going to be cold. And that, yes, you're going to take off your boots, but your feet are also going to be freezing. So they have a servant that's there. And they get you to sit down on the bench, and the servant comes with a nice warm pan of water and puts your feet in there to warm them up and make you feel comfortable to put your slippers on and enjoy the rest of the meal. Now, as you're sitting there on the bench, and the servant is doing the thing with your feet, where are you looking at? Your host. Because you're not there to visit the servant, you're there to visit your friend, or your boss, or your employee, or whoever it is that's invited you over to their house. The servant is down here, you're up there looking at your host, and having a conversation with them. That's how disruptive Jesus is, because you see, if Jesus and the disciples had all been Canadians, what would have happened is they would have come in, and they would have been talking with Jesus, who is the host for the meal, and then they would have expected a servant to come over and warm up their feet. Suddenly, it's Jesus doing it, and they don't know where to look. They should be looking up at the host. Instead, they're forced to look down at their feet, which is something you just don't do, and at the person who's washing them, who is one and the same time serving them, and also their host. The disruption that's happening in John 13 is Jesus asking the question, where are your eyes directed when you're looking for God? Jesus is trying to break the pattern that we have of looking for God in the wrong places. 
Why does Jesus want to break the pattern? He wants to break this pattern for us, first of all, because it's not reality. We've been looking at the wrong place all along. We keep our eyes fixed on God on his throne. That's where we want to see God, the God of power and of presence and of timelessness, the all-powerful wizard behind the curtain who can do anything and say anything and be about anything. And so whenever anything bad happens in our lives, we're always looking up there at the throne. Well, Lord, save us from COVID-19. Come down, wave the magic wand, and make the virus go away. Save us from hurricanes so that we don't have to be going out and rebuilding more houses in Puerto Rico or, Lord prevent it, other islands as well. Why don't you just wave your magic wand and make the hurricanes go away? Or earthquakes? Or cancer? Or anything else that you could use to fill in that sentence? Our eyes are fixed up at the throne but Jesus asks us whether maybe perhaps God is at work down by our feet, serving in a very unexpected way. Remember that when Moses encountered God, it was in a burning bush, which is a very odd place to encounter God. One would expect him on top of Mount Sinai, in thunderclouds, with lightning and all of that great firework display. One would not expect him in a bush, that is burning and yet not consumed. And when Moses finally gets up the courage to ask this God who he is, what is your name? God doesn't say Bob or Roger or Janine. He says something very strange. I am that I am. Which from the Hebrew could also be translated as I will be what I will be, which could also even be translated as watch what I'm doing. And by those things, you will know who I am. Isaiah, the prophet, often called the fifth gospel of the Old Testament, has four great what are called servant songs about the servant of God working in Israel, the Messiah specifically. And we always listen to the fourth servant song or read it together on Good Friday. In each of those servant songs, the servant of the Lord suffers in his service to the people. God is not found up on top of the mountain in the lightning and the thunder, but down in the trenches at work in helping and healing and saving his people. This afternoon, I got one of our famous outreach emails from somebody saying, I'm struggling to be a believer, but I wanna know how can a good God allow all of these evil things to happen and allow suffering to continue? That is precisely what happens when we're staring up at the throne and not down where our Lord is, which is suffering in our place. So the question that Jesus is raising in John 13 for us tonight is this. Where are our eyes looking for God? And if they're looking in the wrong place, can Jesus get our eyes to move? Can we see God in service? Can we see God in his saving work on our behalf? I can use COVID-19 as a great illustration of this. We can look at it and say, where is God at work in stopping this? Why is he allowing viruses to continue? Why does he allow people to succumb to this disease? Why is he allowing our entire economy to suffer? 
just because of this one little organism. That's one way of looking for God in this. The other is to look where Jesus is at work. Have we lost, perhaps, our appreciation of touch? How much it means just to have another person give you a hug? Have we lost what it means to be in fellowship with one another, to be able to gather together with other people? Have we taken that so for granted that now God is giving us an opportunity as his people to tell the world how important these things are and how much we should be giving thanks when we're able to do them? One of my brother pastors, who's the president of Concordia College in New York, uh, Pastor John Nunes, wrote this on his Facebook page uh, just, I think it was either today or yesterday. He said, some have called this pandemic apocalyptic. Now, the word apocalyptic, as you know from studying Revelation, those who have been in Bible study, doesn't mean the end. What it means is an unveiling, a revealing of something that was hidden. So John Nunes goes on to write, that's what I'm trying to do, figure out what might be revealed. For example, I'm realizing more precision in my personal values caused by social deprivation. Looking back, you rediscover who and what really matters. A main ingredient of the Christian faith is gathering together, he wrote. Thus, many are suffering in their souls from a famine of Eucharistic fellowship. I hope, he wrote, this ache opens us up to new ways of welcoming outsiders to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. When we are busy looking for God up there or out there, we miss where he is engaged in work, which often is right in here, in taking small and black hearts and turning them into hearts that follow after the image of his son, that we might love one another as Jesus has loved us. So who around you has stinky feet? These are the people whose feet we are called to wash. And I'm not talking about physical feet here. Stinky feet come in all sorts of different varieties and flavors. The person that just rubs you the wrong way. The person that is annoying continually. The person that won't leave you alone. The person that's just always on your case. How do we wash their feet? Out of love for the Lord who has come to wash ours. Because the reality of these three holy days is that we see a God who didn't stay up on his throne, but entered into our world to bear our sin to the cross, to wash all of our stinky feet in baptism and give us the promise that we are his forevermore. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.